Be seated. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. We continue our reading in the Gospel of Matthew, coming to chapter 15, verse 10 tonight. Let us pray again and then read 10 through 20. Our God and Father, we do pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray that we would hear it. We would hear it with good ears and a good heart, that we would understand it, that we would indeed cling to it, and that it would indeed have its work in us. Father, help and bless the preaching of your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing unto you, and that all who hear would by your Holy Spirit receive the word as your own, recognizing the authority of the Master Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would all find ourselves reformed, ever more so, according to the image of your own Son, that we would come away renewed in his courage, renewed in his wisdom, renewed in his teaching and authority, and renewed in his love for us. In his name we pray, amen. Matthew 15, verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is God's word. <clears throat> there are times when you can be sure you are hearing the word of God clearly because you have been offended by it. This is happening to the Pharisees in our text tonight. Now, this is not a fail-proof test. 
But you can be pretty sure if the Bible has never offended you, or if it never made you at least laugh at yourself, you might have a problem. After all, laughing at yourself is one of the purest forms of repentance. When you laugh at yourself, it is because you have quickly moved through all the stages of being offended to the discovery stage, the discovery that you have been an ignorant fool, and now you are so blessed to know it, and you laugh with joy that you came to the discovery without great harm and wrath. In our text tonight, the Pharisees are offended. Jesus has gone over their heads, as you see in verse 10, to publicly teach a crowd in the statement called the parable of verse 11, to teach things that are the exact opposite of what the Pharisees teach. But not just that, what Jesus said to the crowd in verse 11 makes the Pharisees look way too busy, way too serious, and way too uppity. And they're offended. But they're not laughing at themselves yet. Not yet. I wonder how many of the Pharisees looked back on these events several years later with thanksgiving. Because some of them did join the Church of Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of them look back on these events, this teaching, thankful that Jesus told them the truth, even though they did not welcome it at first. But later, when a few of them had come to love him, worship him, and believe in him, then, because of what he said here, they could finally think straight and walk straight in line with the gospel. So if you are offended tonight, be hopeful. Your being offended may turn out to be very productive. It may bring you more in line with Jesus Christ and his gospel and keep you in line. Paul had to offend Peter once. And I have to wonder out loud when I see Peter speaking up, saying that the Pharisees were offended. When I see Peter speaking up saying, explain this parable to me, I don't understand it. When I see Peter speaking up, I have to wonder if this is sort of a premonition of what happened later in his life. Peter Peter had to be offended once by Paul on the very same issues Jesus is teaching on in verse 11. There was a time when Peter, as a Jew, did the unthinkable. He ate with Gentile Christians who kept none of the Jewish ceremonies that were once required of Jews under the Mosaic administration of the covenant. Peter, walking on good gospel ground, walking straight in line with the gospel, he went and left the Jewish rules about washing and unclean foods, and he sat down and ate a meal with Gentiles, and then ate another one, and then ate another one. He was eating bacon. But then Peter quit the Gentiles. He quit them. He stopped eating with them. Galatians 2.12 tells us Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter began pretending He could no longer eat with Gentiles in good conscience. 
It was cowardly. It was hypocritical. But at its bottom, it was rooted in fear. Peter feared the circumcision party. He feared the disapproval of men. He feared what they would say about him among the reverent Jews up in Jerusalem. He feared how they would ruin his reputation among austere Jewish men whose names and whose gravitas Peter knew so well. Well, how did Peter get pulled out of that ugly ditch he had fallen into? Someone had to come and offend him. And that someone offended Peter publicly, just like our Lord Jesus is publicly offending the Pharisees in verse 10 and 11 by going over their heads to the crowd. So much was at stake. So many others were being led astray. So in Peter's case, the job fell to Paul. Here's how Paul described that moment. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It was good for Peter to be offended. By it, he was recovered to the truth of the gospel, which says that because we are justified by faith, in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. All foods are clean to us. All foods are clean to us. That's the little parenthetical phrase that Mark includes in his gospel record of this same passage I've read to you from Matthew 15. It's not in Matthew 15, 10 through 20, but it is in Mark 7. All foods are clean to us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So what could possibly be said here tonight that offends you? Jesus' teaching in verse 11 could do it for you. (laughs) He says, true defilement is not external and ritual, but internal and moral. This means sin comes from the heart, not from your environment. The sin in your home comes from the human heart, not because of the other people you live with. They're not the cause of your sin. True godliness is not staying out of certain states, staying out of certain cities, True godliness is not about avoiding certain foods. True godliness is not keeping tobacco off your lips. True godliness is not keeping whiskey off your breath. True godliness comes from the heart, from the desires, the ambitions, the wants, and we will come to more on that as we work through our text. To help sink this in, here's a, here's a real scene from several decades ago that pressed these exact issues on the tender consciences of Christian college students. 
In Wheaton, Illinois, busloads of Christian college students would regularly come back to their Christian college campus on Sunday afternoons after, had, after having been bused out to various churches. And as they came back to campus in their bus, there was often that awkward moment, if the timing was just right, where that, those buses rolled past the Wheaton Reformed Church where the elders of that church had just finished morning worship and they were out on the lawn smoking cigarettes. It caused quite a business. What should we make of this? What should we make of what one writer called, quote, a brazen dismissal of artificial morality? Should we be offended by it? Should we rush out onto the lawn and say, stop smoking, stop smoking, here come the buses, here come the buses? Should we perhaps just put up a sign that says no smoking? Or should we just be so well discipled in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are always ready to say, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Now in verse 12, the disciples seem to be uneasy to be part of something that is offending such prominent and serious men in Israel. And this is always the rub, right? Well, this is gonna offend so-and-so and so-and-so is such a godly man. Maybe this is the same so-and-so who prayed for 73 years with no desires. Maybe. So verse 12, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Now, at the point when we come to verse 12, the conversation is moved from the public realm to the private. Now it's just Jesus and the disciples again, which is a frequent pattern that Matthew shows us. Jesus says something in front of a crowd, in front of Pharisees, and then there's this search for deeper understanding privately between Jesus and his disciples. But the first thing they have to say to their master is, you know, this really offended the Pharisees, what you just said in verse 11. They call it a parable. Peter does. Jesus replies in verse 13 and 14, making his judgment on the matter quite clear. He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Our Lord Jesus is saying, do not give yourself to the teaching of those who do not teach what I teach. He is drawing them away from their attraction to the austere clergy of Israel. Leave them alone. Notice what he says, our Lord. Two metaphors. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Now, this very well 
could be our Lord Jesus referring back to the parable he had just been teaching about the wheat and the tares. And if it is referring back to the parable of the wheat and the tares, the Lord is saying that there are men in clerical robes in Israel who are not planted by the Lord. That means they have been planted by someone else, an enemy. That means they are tares. And they will be rooted up on the day of the great rooting up. It is also likely that the Lord is having in mind that his work is, is evidenced by his protection. He could be referring to Isaiah 60, 21, which says, your people shall be all righteousness. Excuse me, your people shall, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. That those who truly have been planted by the Lord will be in accord with the Lord of the harvest, with the Lord who is the sower. They will be in accord with his own teaching. When they hear him say that that which is within you is what defiles you, they say, yes, preach it, instead of walk away offended. The Lord may also be referring to Isaiah 61.3, which says something similar as Isaiah 60.21. He speaks of the redeemed. He says, they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Notice that both of these references in Isaiah which are so close together. Both of them speak about the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. Meaning that they would reflect his authority, that they would reflect his wisdom, that they would be in complete accord and applause of his teaching. The Pharisees and the Lord Jesus are in two different kingdoms. That doesn't mean that every Pharisee will remain in the kingdom of darkness. But it does mean at this time they are in the kingdom of darkness. So our Lord says, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. The Pharisees are guides. They are wanting to take the nation of Israel somewhere. But where? destruction, a pit. Their doctrine will lead men away from God and not bring men and women to rest in the sufficiency of God's salvation and the the cleansing that Christ brings through his mediation. Their guiding will always be taking men into a self-cleansing works righteousness. Their guidance will always keep men from saying, All foods are clean to me. And so they are blind guides. And anybody who follows them must also therefore be blind because they are not going anywhere close to the light and both will fall into a pit. So our Lord's judgment is leave them alone. Do not seek to placate them. Do not seek to comfort them. 
Do not seek to overcome the offense. Do not seek to moderate the offensive teaching. Do not follow after them. Do not seek a compromise. Disappoint them. Leave them alone. Leave them alone with their offended spirit. If they are opposed to the teaching of your master, leave them be. Jesus is not worried about offending the Pharisees. They need to be offended. Now, it is true, in my view, that there are some Christians who don't like any of this kind of work of Jesus Christ in his church. They want to get along with everybody and not offend anybody. But, beloved, it is the ministry of Jesus Christ to offend people on matters that obscure to them the radiance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must be offended if you are not resting fully and joyfully in the cleansing that Jesus Christ has accomplished for you on the cross. If you are adding something to bring your conscience to rest, some outward, external form of ritual, you must be offended because you are not truly resting. It doesn't mean you must participate in every freedom you can, but it must mean that you discover that it is you who has bound your conscience, not your God. And that's such an important discovery so that you don't go around binding the consciences of others like these Pharisees are trying to do. J. Gresham Machen, one of our OPC fathers of the faith, he said, a Christianity that avoids argument is not the Christianity of the New Testament. I know some Christian pastors who, who don't think what Jesus is doing here and what Paul is doing with Peter is necessary confrontation. Let everybody have their gifts. Let everybody just do good works. Beloved, this is necessary confrontation. Jesus is not in a state of despair that he's offended the local clergy. I hope the elders on the Wheaton Reformed Church lawn were not in a state of despair that they offended young Christian college students with their cigarettes. Machen also said, a deadly vagueness, a deadly vagueness gradually affects the church's witness. Witness to what? To a gospel that fully and completely cleanses you on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we witness to. We cannot be vague about that. And so sometimes we are going to need to offend those who are trying to clean themselves with external and formal ritual. Now, to give you a little encouragement in this, have you heard the story of Christopher Froschauer? In the 16th century city, Zurich, Switzerland, Christopher Froschauer 
was one of the most prestigious printers of books in the city. A man of wealth, a man of power, and he could have calculated every move he made to keep everyone liking him and nobody offended by him. Instead, after he and his apprentices completed a new edition of St. Paul's epistles, they celebrated with sausage. Now you think, well, I eat sausage all the time. Well, this was a sausage on a Friday in the season of Lent. And nobody in Zurich was supposed to be eating sausage on a Friday in the middle of Lent. Not only this, Froschauer and his apprentices invited a local priest named Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli was delighted to be there at the affair of the sausages. And this, beloved, caused a great scandal. This offended many people. But it helped ignite the gospel reformation in the city of Zurich and around the world that has even reached our own cities in Nina and Oshkosh and wherever the Reformed churches are. Beloved, do not think that this little 10-verse passage is not the work of the Church of Jesus Christ. If your piety, which is another word for godliness, is not properly rooted in the gospel, then it will be not very long until the gospel itself becomes changed, perverted, and distorted. Now look at what the Lord says in verse 17 through 20. Here is his answer to Peter. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. The heart is the source of the defilement. To be very tight and close to the text, that which you say is a revelation of your heart. There's no better diagnostic test of the condition of your heart than the things that are coming out of your mouth. It is never true, and I'm repeating something you've heard Paul Tripp say, it is never true that you didn't mean to say what you said. You did mean it. You wish you hadn't said it out loud. (laughs) You wish it now would not on the record. You wish now that the discovery that everybody now has of what your heart is really like hadn't been made, but you did mean to say it. What comes out of your mouth is the perfect diagnostic of what is in your heart. And notice that your your savior, your master, your teacher, is keeping you from the labyrinth of years and error of thinking that the cleanliness of your heart is revealed in external rituals and the things that you don't eat and the things that you don't touch and the things that you don't smoke and the things that you don't drink. I have a clean heart. I haven't touched that stuff for years. Your Savior is delivering you from 30 years in the wilderness of thinking that your heart is getting cleaner because you are not drinking scotch. 
You don't have to go drink scotch to believe this and benefit from it. But you have to be okay that I drink scotch. No. <laughs> yes, you do. But beloved, that does not make our heart clean. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Our Lord is telling us that our heart is what needs to be cleansed, not our plate, not our dietary choices, not our beverage menu. What needs to be cleansed is our heart. We are prone to blame things outside of us in our environment for the things that we do, for our anger, which is murder, for our lust, which is adultery, for our covetousness, which is theft. We are prone to blame that person made me do it. That circumstance made me do it. Those conditions of providence made me do it. The Lord Jesus is saying, your heart made you do it. Trace the sin back to your heart. What then is the cure? Don't we hear it in the prayer of David, Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Remove from me my transgression. Renew my heart in your holiness. Break the dominion of sin that reigns in my heart. Who is the Lord of the heart? It is Jesus Christ. It is he who sends forth his spirit. It is he who has accomplished our redemption, who has purchased the ministry of his own spirit to come into our heart and cure it, renovate it, reform it, align it with his own heart to love what he loves, to love other people the way he loves other people instead of wanting to use them, instead of wanting to abuse them, instead of wanting to use their bodies on our eyes as a flash on a screen, instead of wanting to use their skills by lying to them to get them to help make us more money. Jesus gives us his heart, which does not use people but suffers for people. He gives us the same holy heart that carried him through an earthly sojourn to the cross. He has purchased our share of his heart and sends forth his spirit to give us that heart. He makes us clean. And he will make us clean for all who cry out and call upon him in their affliction. Let us pray. And so, Father, we are afflicted. We are afflicted by these motions of the heart that are sinful and corrupt. 
we recognize our own struggles in the words that we have read in these final verses. But we thank you, O Lord, that you have already spared us the long and exhausting folly of chasing after external cures to that which is an internal problem. We thank you for the teaching of our Savior. It is a brilliant light to us. It keeps us away from all sorts of dark, shadowy paths. And we thank you that he who knows our heart better than we, who knows all its vile places, who knows all its vile ambitions and vile desires, knowing all of it, he came anyway and laid down his life to be an atonement for our sin and to bear the penalty of these wicked hearts. And we pray in our union with him that he would send forth his spirit and strength into our hearts and give us that holy heart we see in him every time we look at him where he is never using someone for his own pleasure, never abusing someone for his own advancement, always suffering in the body, always serving, always losing to keep men in contact with righteousness. Give us his heart, O God, in his name. Give us such a holy heart that we would look upon others not to use them, but to serve them, even if it causes us to suffer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.